Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, our scripture reading will come from verses 1 through 26. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. This section of text comes after the sharing of the gospel with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and his household came to know the Lord. In Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 26, here we see two responses to God's work. One by those who are Jewish believers, who are of the circumcision, and another response to God's work by Barnabas, as we'll see in verses 19 through 26. The text of the Word of God reads, beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 11, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me, and when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, and the wild beasts, and the crawling creatures, and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. Behold, at that moment three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea." The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men 
of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your eternal word, for the grass withers and the flowers will fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And so, God, we pray once again... Illumine our minds and grant to us understanding that we might rejoice and be encouraged, that we might encourage others at your work, the greatness of who you are. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Many of you have been following football, college football, maybe even last night, or the day before, maybe even the Seahawks. During the 2015-2016 season, early this year, they were playing a wild card game against the Minnesota Vikings. And you might recall that game on January 10th. The Vikings kicker, his name was Blair Walsh. He was doing very well. He had made an NFL high of 34 field goals, and before the Vikings playoff game against the Seahawks, he had converted 33 out of 34 inside the 30-yard line in his career. And so when the Vikings were down 10 to 9, and the Seahawks were up by one point, there were 22 seconds left on the clock. They lined up, the Vikings did, for an easy 27-yard field goal. And it looked like they would win. But it sliced left wide, and the, sea, the Vikings' season came to a halt. Well, as you can imagine, there was a big media storm, social media storm directed against the kicker because as a kicker, there's a lot of pressure. You, as you very well know, could either be a hero or a zero. And so, because he missed, there was a lot of criticism against him. Well, you probably don't know that there was a group of first graders in Minnesota that set out to encourage their broken-hearted kicker. First grader Allie Edwards said, quote, Blair was really sad, and we wanted to make him feel better. One of her classmates wrote, Dear Blair Walsh, I think you should, S-H-O-D, keep trying. Don't give up. We still love you. Get better by practicing. Tyler Dauphin filled the whole page for Walsh. Dear Blair, I fell bad for you. Don't give up. You're still number one. Practice more so you can get better at kicking. C-I-C-I-N-G. You're so good at kicking. 
don't give up, keep trying, we still love you, unquote. Well, these first graders and their act of kindness and encouragement really touched his heart, and so he delayed his flight back home a day so that he could go and visit that class. And after his visit, he said, it was very touching to me. A lot of cards were pretty creative. I will cherish them forever, unquote. Everyone is blessed by encouragement, a kind word, a thank you note, thoughtful email, an affirming smile, a simple gift or a prayer. But some may not have ever grown up in that type of environment where perhaps they grew up in an environment or were surrounded by negative feedback or criticism, which was often much more common perhaps, never measuring up, never being good enough, perhaps was a standard of their teacher, their coach, their boss, or their parents. And those attitudes can easily spill over into ministry as well, where biases, where prejudices, where criticism blind people from the joy of seeing God work. This morning we will look at a situation where God works in two different cases. And in one case, we see one group of individuals that miss the forest from the trees and come with great criticism against the Apostle Peter. And another situation in which we will see God also work, bringing people to salvation, but the response of Barnabas was that of encouragement and joy. So we take a look at these two contrasting responses to God's work, and we begin here in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. As I mentioned before, this section of text comes immediately after Peter had come and shared the gospel with Cornelius, and his whole family came to know Christ, and here that had been heard that they had received the word of God, the apostles and the brethren throughout Judea. It had spread quickly that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And yet, in verse 2, when Peter came up to Jerusalem, it says, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, the circumcised here that it speaks of were those brethren mentioned in verse 1. In other words, these were Jewish believers who missed the forest from the trees and were stuck with the fact that Peter went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, you might recall from a message that was about a month ago where we learned that there was great, great prejudice against those who were Gentiles. Strict Jews would have nothing to do with Gentiles. The Mishnah would declare that all Gentile homes were unclean. So if you went into a Gentile home, you would be defiled. You would be considered unclean. Having Gentiles over to your home was not done either. In fact, it was where that phrase comes from, shake the dust off of your feet, was what Jews did. If they were in Gentile land and they re-entered into Jewish territory, they would shake the dust off of their feet. Any cooking utensils purchased from a Gentile had to be purified, and food that was prepared by a Gentile wouldn't be eaten by Jews. In short, Gentiles were considered unclean, and their whole presence would be considered defiling. 
Perhaps you might picture it would be like standing next to pig pen and deciding, boy, how can I be clean? That was their perspective. Jews would avoid Gentiles like the plague, and their prejudicial thinking would cloud their heart, even though it says in verse 1, they had heard the Gentiles had received the word of the Lord. And without asking for a clarification, without asking for further inquiries about what had happened and giving thanks to God, without giving Peter the benefit of the doubt, they brought about an accusation against Peter. A classic example of misguided zeal and legalism where they miss the joy that should come from hearing about the work of God. And so stuck were they on these Jewish customs that they sidestepped the fact that the Gentiles had received the word of God. In fact, in verse 18, it tells us that this was not a small disturbance at all. They had quite a ruckus that had begun. And so Peter proceeds here in verse 4 through 17 in the defense of the grace of God upon the Gentiles. He reiterated what happened from the vision of the sheet which came down with all sorts of animals being lowered all the way to the gospel message being shared with Cornelius and his household. And God had showed Peter the meaning of the sheet lowered from heaven. Just as the Old Testament dietary laws were repealed and there was no more clean and unclean foods, so too there would not be any quote-unquote clean and unclean person. And the Gentiles would be included in the church That was God's intention. And there would be no more discrimination. There was to be no discrimination, no prejudice against Gentiles as Jewish Christians were equal to Gentile Christians in the church. And he goes forth in this entire narrative, it says, in sequential order of what happened. And he points out, reiterating what had happened once again, as we had seen in in Acts chapter 10. And there are a few particular differences I'd like to point out in his narrative. We won't go through all of the details as you've seen them in the past chapter, but a few particular differences that he brings forth, highlighting. In Peter's defense, first of all, in verse 12, he says this, The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. One of the things that Peter points out in his defense was that it wasn't his idea, it wasn't his impulsiveness, it wasn't his uh, own initiative, it was the Spirit of God which commanded him to go with these individuals without any misgivings. And furthermore, what he was telling them was witnessed by six, six brethren, six unsympathetic Jewish brethren who went with him. These six brethren have no ulterior motives, and they are the same as you, circumcised Jews, who would go with Peter and witness that which God had done. Peter's actions, secondly, verse 13, he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, that is Cornelius, and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. 
In other words, verse 14, Peter will speak to you words by which you will be saved. What he preaches to you will be the means by which you and all your household will be saved. Or simply put, Peter would share with them the gospel. And that is what we saw at the end of chapter 10. That is exactly what he said. And lastly, thirdly, Peter cites as a third thing that this was the fulfillment of Scripture. Not only did Peter say, it wasn't my idea, these six brethren came with me. Not only did he say that the gospel was shared with them, and that is what was the fulfillment of Scripture. Thirdly here, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, he says, I remember the word of the Lord. He used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All of these things in Peter's defense convinced these skeptical, these critical Jews who were not happy that he had gone to eat with the Gentiles. Verse 18 shows the result. With all of that, they conceded, saying, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. It was more than a couple of people who were disturbed, but they came to accept the testimony that Peter had, the testimony of these six witnesses, that it was God's will, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, that they, the Gentiles, were a part of the church. It wasn't easy, I am sure, for them to accept at first because of the extreme prejudices that they had, their disdain for Gentiles. And in the same way, it's not easy many times for people such as us to overcome our own prejudices, our own preferences, our own biases, even though it may be something that may be biblical. In some cultures around the world, you realize some subcultures as well, racism and discrimination still exist. And sometimes we may not even realize our own biases or prejudices. Some churches only support missions to their own culture rather than cross-culturally, while maybe some others are involved with social events or cross-cultural marriages or even in Christ Christian ministries. There can be barriers because of race that Christians may find difficult inside to overcome. There are hindrances. Perhaps you might not know, but one of the first missionaries or the first missionary, I should say, from North America, was a man by the name of George Lyell. He was a former slave who left the America colonies for Jamaica back in 1782, and he began a ministry of preaching there the next year, a whole decade before William Carey sailed for India from England. And in missions history, William Carey, who went to India as a missionary, is often called the father of modern missions. This individual, George Lyell, was a first missionary from North America, and he was a former slave a decade earlier than William Carey. But after the Revolutionary War, he had been freed, and he went to Jamaica, though, to escape being re-enslaved. But he arrived in Jamaica as an indentured servant. He would serve as a missionary evangelist, and he became the first Christian to win a significant number of, of slaves on the island to the Lord Jesus, and the first to plant a church composed of slaves. He preached in private homes. He preached in public settings. 
and he drew a large crowds of slaves. In a letter written in 19, or 1791, he reported having 500, there were 500 converts and 400 baptisms. And in 1789, the congregation had organized, and by 1793, they had completed the Windward Road Chapel, the first Baptist church on the island. He had achieved some great things for the Lord, or the Lord used him greatly, despite the opposition from others on the island, powerful people, white slave owners, who feared who feared upon the slave population if they were to embrace Christianity, the concern was, quote, if their minds are considerably enlightened by religion or otherwise, that it would be attended with the most dangerous consequences, unquote. He had opposition from slave owners, stiff opposition. He was charged with sedition. He was jailed on numerous occasions on trumped-up charges, but he continued to baptize new converts and plant, organize, plant and organize new churches, etc. And undoubtedly, many of those slave owners might have called themselves believers. But the impact of his ministry continues on even today, and he's buried unmarked grave there in Jamaica. Isn't that amazing? The people's prejudices failed to see the world as God sees the world that there is basically just one race, that is the human race. And from God's perspective, there are only two categories, those who are saved and those who are not saved, those who are His children and those who are not. There's only one race, the human race. If you were blind from birth, do you think that you might see the world differently than people who can see, perhaps even in a better way. Those who were circumcised had issues with Peter. They had major issues with Peter. They only saw the small part of their tradition, of their legalism, blinded by their own biases, blinded by their own prejudices, and not giving glory to God right offhand. They knew that the Gentiles, it says in verse 1, had received the word of the Lord. Yet, rather than inquiring further or giving Peter the benefit of the doubt, they brought about an accusation and brought a cloud over what was to be a joyous time, only later to give glory to God after Peter elucidated what happened. Their initial reaction was that of bias and prejudice, which isn't to be a part of what we as Christians, how we are to look at God's work in God's church. A contrasting reaction from Barnabas here we see in God's work in verse 19 through 26. In the evangelization of the Greeks, as we look in verse 19, so then those who are scattered because of the persecution that occurred, it says, in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks and preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. This passage brings us back to Acts chapter 8, verse 4. 
After the stoning of Stephen, the church scattered because of persecution. It scattered outwards, and a number of them made their way up north, northwest from Jerusalem on to Phoenicia, along the northern coast there of Judea. And the Phoenicians, as you know, were known for their shipbuilding, for their maritime skills. And off the coast of Phoenicia, some 60 miles would have been uh, the area of Cyprus. And some 300 miles north of Jerusalem would have been Antioch, to give you a little lay of the land. 300 miles would be basically the distance from Portland to Vancouver, B.C. When persecution hit the church, the Jews spread, and they brought the gospel with them onto Phoenicia, onto Cyprus, all the way up to Antioch. And some of these Jews, they only went and spoke to no one, it says, but the Jews alone. They had no idea that the gospel was to be intended for the Gentiles also. They spoke to Jews. They were out of the area when this incident happened with Peter and Cornelius. But here we see that there are some men of Cyprus, men of Cyrene, it says in the text, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks and also preaching Jesus. Now these men of Cyprus, these men of Cyrene, would have been Hellenistic Jews, Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, Jews who had adopted some of the Greek culture. And Jews, as opposed to native Judean Jews, who traveled northward to Antioch. And Antioch was a significant place. It was out there among the Gentiles. Antioch was the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire. After Rome and after Alexandria came Antioch. It is supposed that there were some 300,000 people in the city of Antioch, and roughly 10% were Jews. That was the third, again, the third largest city there in the empire. It was a major metropolis. It had a lot of commerce, a lot of culture, along with that, a lot of idolatry, a lot of uh, idolatry and also immorality because of a pagan temple and pagan prostitutes nearby. But there were Greek-speaking Jews who began to evangelize the Greeks, that is, Greek Gentiles. And a large number, it says, who believed turned to the Lord. Here in Antioch was the birth of the very first Gentile church. From the time of Pentecost, from the time of Pentecost, the time of the establishment of the first Gentile church there in Antioch was at least seven years. Not only did they understand and believe in the message, but the Bible tells us that they turned to the Lord. These were people who were just not believed and intellectually understood the gospel, but they turned to the Lord a note of repentance, of a repentant life. And once the Jerusalem church heard about this news, this is what they did, verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Barnabas, what an individual. He was the right man to send. His name means son of encouragement. He's the right man to send. He himself was Greek-speaking from Cyprus. He was a Cyprian who would have been viewed by the population in Antioch as one of them. He had a strong reputation. We first meet, we first meet Barnabas in Acts chapter 4 when he gave a gift generously to the church. We meet him again in Acts chapter 9 verse 27 where he vouched 
for Saul and Saul's conversion before the apostles so that they would accept him. And we see him here again, and the Bible says that he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Here we meet Barnabas. His response, his reputation was very strong, and his response was very much unlike that of the circumcised believing Jews towards Peter. His response was that he rejoiced, knowing that God had brought about the salvation of many, he responded with great joy, not with prejudice, not with preference or with biases. He was filled with joy. Some Jews, I'm sure, would have been unhappy with the conversion of all of these Gentiles. Jews were very ethnocentric, believing that they were the only chosen people of God, that the church did not include them, had a hard time, I'm sure, but not for Barnabas. The question for you and I is this. How is it that we look at the work of God? How is it that we see the work of God when we see God working, when we see God blessing, when we see God moving? Do we respond with joy? Is that our response? Are we happy? Are we glad? Do we give praise to God? When we read missionary newsletters, or when we hear successful short-term trips, or when we hear about other ministry departments doing well, does that fill you with joy? Or do we look at God's work with rather regular skepticism, or doubt, or negativity, or maybe jealousy, or maybe as some type of competition? Sometimes in some industries it is hard. In the music industry for Christian musicians, sometimes it is hard because part of your livelihood is making music that is sells so that you can have an income. And when others, when others are, are more popular, it can be very competitive and it may be hard to find joy, but the purpose of ministry is not to compete. While having a discerning mind is important when it comes to ministries that outwardly flourish, it's important not, not to be one who squelches the enthusiasm for what God is doing when we see the God, hand of God moving. And Barnabas was such a blessing to these believers, and we see Barnabas doing three particular things. First of all, the Bible says that he encouraged them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. He was an encourager. He was an encourager. That is so very key. Positive encouragement for them to be faithful to God, to cling to His Word, to be people who are, who are resolute in heart and remain true to God. You don't need to have a special gift to be an encourager. Every single person here can offer words of encouragement, words of affirmation. You don't need to be a certain age to encourage. You can be older or younger. You can be in the first grade and write a note to a kicker that will encourage him. You simply need to have that sensitivity so you can be a Barnabas encouraging others. Ajith Fernando writes, quote, Some people see a new work and immediately compare it with their own work. This makes them feel threatened about their status. So they look at the shortcomings in the new work. There will always be shortcomings. 
Focusing on those things, they end up criticizing the work. Such criticism may be valid, but it is ill-timed and done in the wrong spirit. Some people alienate themselves from the young, enthusiastic, and sometimes immature leaders. They forfeit their chance to influence them towards maturity." Unquote. This type of thing happened to a church, not in the local area that I know of, where in that church there was a generation of individuals who served the Lord very faithfully, and they grew older, and they had children, and they continued to serve the Lord in that church for a long time. When their children became a certain age at which they could begin serving, they only gave those individuals limited opportunities, limited opportunities with the mentality that was, well, I can do it better. And perhaps some criticism along with that, I'll just take care of it, was a part of that. But in the end, for that church, later on, there was a mass exodus of all of those young people to another church where they could serve. What happened to that church? Well, it was left with the same old people continuing to serve in the same old roles. Everyone has different ways of doing things, new ideas. Rather than being threatened by new ideas by those who might be younger, they need encouragement. As I told Stephen when we hired him a while back, that he would make mistakes, and it's okay. We won't fire him. God has been gracious, God has been patient with myself, and God has been patient with you and I as we have grown older and made mistakes of our own. And we too ought to be gracious and patient, encouraging others, and that's what Barnabas did. For these young believers to remain steadfast in the Lord, he was a minister of encouragement. We'll see that as part of his life later on. Secondly, he found help. He found help. Verse 25. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. This new group of people would have nothing against Saul since they were not the object of his persecution. Barnabas solicited his help, the help of Saul, and he brought him to Antioch. And it was no small task. This was not a small task for Barnabas to go to Tarsus. Tarsus was 100 miles away. You think about how long it would take to walk 100 miles it was important enough, though, for him to find the right man, Saul, whom God would use greatly. Likely, Saul was more educated than Barnabas. Likely, Saul would have studied more. He was trained, he was articulate, and he was perhaps even more gifted than Barnabas. But Barnabas, knowing his weaknesses, he went to seek help. If someone were to say, Barnabas... How about getting Saul of Tarsus to come and help? I can't imagine Barnabas saying something like, What? Think I'm not good enough? You don't think I'm good enough? Well, I guess you don't want me. Go get Saul yourself. No, Barnabas was very secure because he saw the big picture, that a person like Saul would be much more effective perhaps reaching these people, that this would be a ministry Saul would be able to fit in well with, and he would bring him and be an encourager to Saul, whom I'm sure had faced plenty of rejection already. But he wasn't afraid of Saul. He wasn't afraid of this intellectual and theological giant. 
He wasn't afraid that his own position or how he would look would appear to the believers in Antioch. No, ministry was not about him. It was not about Barnabas. It was about the advancement of the kingdom and the glory of God. And so he knew a right man, a better man, and he sought that man to do the job, and that was Saul. Not only did he encourage, found help, thirdly, he taught them. He and Saul, for an entire year, it says, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. One of the important things in the establishment of new believers in their faith is sound biblical teaching, sound teaching, sound biblical understanding of what the Scriptures say, and they spent an entire year doing that, teaching them the Word and the way of God, and people came to know Christ. Verse 21 and repeated in verse 24 to underscore the fact that large numbers of people, large numbers of Gentiles came to know Christ, and they needed the encouragement. They were the minority among a very pagan city a very idolatrous, immoral city. They needed to be established in the Word of God. There was so much to learn, so much that was new. And I'm sure that Barnabas and Saul had such a busy, busy life, but it was an exciting life to see the explosion of the Gentile church. Barnabas, I'm sure it brought him great joy and encouragement to him. These new believers... Disciples, it says, were first called Christians in Antioch. They were first called Christians. This is where the believers were first called Christians. Here, it was in Antioch. It means the Christ people, the Christ people. That term was used really by non-Christian Gentiles to refer to those who are believers. When you look at the New Testament, Christians didn't call themselves Christians. They preferred to be called words like saint or disciple or believers. That's what you would find, you know, among the saints, from writing to the saints or um, address the brethren, whatever it might be. And Jews would not have used this term of Christians to call these believers. They would not have been calling them Christians because to be a Christian or Christ, Christ means Messiah, and they would not accept Jesus as the Messiah And Christians didn't use it for themselves. It was mainly a term that was used by non-Christian Gentiles to refer to non-Christians, to refer to Gentiles, to refer to believers. But this is where it came from, the Christ people. What makes this passage interesting is that unlike the other times when Gentiles came to know Christ in massive numbers, It wasn't because of some well-known apostle like Peter preaching a message and thousands of people coming to know Christ. It wasn't such that there was somebody famous or some well-known evangelist or the apostle Paul later on. These people came to know Christ by everyday people, people who had scattered because of persecution. It came from everyday Christians. Today, there are all sorts of church growth techniques, all sorts of programming and advertising or whatever the church might do, inviting of well-known speakers. One author writes, quote, some of the most significant work for the kingdom has been done by unknown witnesses who are obedient 
to Christ right where they are and where they do not attract much attention. Today, we associate significance and greatness with newsworthiness. Much effort is made to make an event look newsworthy, and thus it has to be associated with names, such as the names of those who write best-selling books or head big organizations. Their names attract people in the media. All this, the author writes, is unnecessary for our task to be faithful to what God calls us to do. If that does not put our name forward on earth, that should not bother us. For our aim in life is not to get our name in the papers, but to hear the Master say, well done. It is the prospect of this reward that thrills true Christians. The Gentile church exploded because of the testimony of the persecuted, because of the testimony of many everyday Christians who shared their faith in Christ. God uses everyday, ordinary Christians to share the gospel message. Romans 10, 14, and 15 tells us, how then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You know, one of the greatest joys a Christian can have is that of sharing the gospel, of sharing your faith, to tell someone the good news, to share the way of salvation to someone who is lost. That is a real joy. The question for us is, how do we respond? How do we respond when we look at this text, how do we respond to when we see God's work, when we see people receiving the Word of God, or when people come to know Christ, how do we respond? We respond with skepticism, like the circumcised Jews who missed the big picture of having received the Lord, giving Peter the benefit of the doubt. They did not. Do we respond with criticism and skepticism, or are we more as a Barnabas who is encouraging, wanting others to shine for the Lord. And it is a joy. It is a joy for many people here in this church to see everyone who serves. But everyone, whether it's from the young to the elderly, are blessed when we're encouraged. A word of thanks, a note of appreciation. Perhaps sharing something that you've learned. Perhaps you might even have a smile or a pat on the back to someone who serves you food downstairs or always those who look to the good of others. That's the type of people we want to be, encouragers, not those who will criticize or to be down on the others because they will fail. They will fail, and it's all a part of learning. It is too easy to lose sight of the forest from the trees because of biases, because of prejudices, because of discrimination. Some of these circumcised Jewish believers, I'm sure, had a hard time swallowing the fact that now there were others who they had not wanted in God's church. But Hebrews 10:25 reminds us that we are to be people encouraging one another, and all the more 
as you see the day draw near. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. What a wonderful opportunity we have, O oh God, to be a blessing through the words we say to our neighbors and coworkers, to those that are believers, to be people who are a blessing by the things that we do and say, to be an encourager, to seek, Father, and see what is good and what is a blessing. And Father, we pray that we might be people who are characterized by that, that you, O oh God, would bless us as we desire to bless others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.